present ongoing grace and peace, both of which flow from God, the Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. And because of this work that God had done in their lives to justify them and continues to do in their lives, to give them grace and peace, which is resulting in a growth of faith and a a growth of love for one another, Paul is constrained to give thanks to God and in one sense brag on them to other churches that he comes in contact with. Because under this intense persecution, God is keeping them faithful. And because they were facing this suffering and this persecution, they needed to be reminded in the second half of chapter 1 that God is a holy and he is a just judge. And he will bring them relief as well as judgment on those who reject the gospel and are persecuting his people when Christ comes for a second time. And then he wraps up this first chapter with a prayer for this church. It was that he would take all of their good resolve, all of their good New Year's resolutions that they made to be able um, to please God with their lives, that God would take their good resolves and through his power and through his grace, turn them from inward resolves to outward works of faith that would demonstrate the worthiness of the kingdom which they are part of, the worthiness of the king of that kingdom, Jesus Christ, the worthiness of the calling that that king has placed on their lives. And that one day they will be fully glorified in him and Jesus will be glorified in them. But he, Paul, was continuing to receive reports about this church that they were receiving and listening to and falling prey to false teaching about Christ's second coming. And so the beginning part of chapter 2 that we looked at, looked at last week, Paul takes a deep dive into eschatology, into the, the doctrine of the last times about Jesus Christ coming back. This church was facing internal agitation that was resulting in external confusion because these false teachers claiming to have a word from the Holy Spirit, claiming to have a letter from Paul, and being very bold in their speaking of this false doctrine, were convincing this church that Jesus had already come back. And so their one hope in the midst of all of this persecution was being quelched. And so they're basically being told that there's nothing better to look forward to than what they were already facing. And and in his teaching, he sets up two very clear indicators that must happen before Jesus returns. And then he, he in turn builds a case for this church to be reminded that Jesus Christ had not come back. So the only right conclusion after he builds this case is that Jesus had not come back. And the two main reasons, he build, ways he builds this case is by reminding them that the rebellion still has to come and the man of lawlessness still has to be revealed. And those two things have not happened. And so Jesus has not come back. These were can't-be-missed events. There's no way that they would have missed them if they would already have happened. And as frightening as these two events may seem to these believers, as black of a backdrop as it may um, be created through his teaching, Paul reassures them 
that these things will not happen outside of the sovereign control of God. Evil never acts independently. And when these events do happen, yes, he will, the man of lawlessness will have power from Satan. He'll have false signs and do wonders to cause people to marvel at him. And he will be controlled by Satan. But when he's finally revealed, it's in order that he will then face the judgment of Christ at his second coming. Jesus Christ will be revealed as well. He will put all rebellion down. It will also be a time of final judgment for those who have rejected Christ, those who do not know God and have not embraced the gospel, those who refuse to love the truth. And so Paul at the beginning of chapter 2 is effectively dislodging this false teaching. He's saying, this is what they're teaching you. Let me show you why it's false and let me, let me move it away from your thinking. This is false. You need to reject it. And so he, he does that for them. But that then remains the question, what about, what about us? What about those who are in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ when all of this happens? What teaching does he replace in their minds? So he roots out false teaching and now says, this is what needs to rule your minds and your hearts. This is what will remove the internal agitation and remove the external confusion and replace it with peace and comfort and hope. And that's where we find ourselves tonight in verses 13 to 17 in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Let's read those together. I'll read them for you, but if you would follow along. Chapter 2, 13 to 17. And he begins with that word, but. So he's making a contrast here after talking about the condemnation that those outside of Christ will face. But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. To this he called you through our gospel so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. And here's his closing prayer of chapter 2. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace, comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. Let's pray. Father, we echo this prayer of Paul that as we look at this passage this evening, would your Son, Jesus Christ himself, and would you as our Father, would we be reminded of your love for us, the salvation that you have eternally decreed and will bring to pass? As we look at that, may we be comforted. May we be renewed in our hope. May our hearts find rest. And then would we not rest on our laurels and what has happened in the past, but as we rest in the truth of the gospel, may that spur us on. May you establish us for every good word and every good work. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. And so again, Paul builds this case for believers leading up to this passage. That number one, false teachers were claiming to have supernatural insight and letters from Paul himself 
stating that Jesus had already come a second time. And he's saying, they're wrong. Why? Because the rebellion and the revelation of the man of lawlessness had not happened yet. And, another point he makes is that when Jesus does come back, it will mean the end of the rebellion and the man of lawlessness and bring condemnation upon all those who have rejected the gospel. And then Paul makes a turn here in verse 13. And he turns to reassure these believers that they will not be subjected to any of the judgment that he just taught them on. So they must in turn stand firm, hold fast to the true teachings of Paul. Whatever he spoke to them and whatever he wrote to them. And then he closes the chapter with a prayer for comfort and stability for the church. And that's our basic outline for tonight. So let's go back to verse 13 and just walk this through verse by verse. And then we'll close some applications as we get to the end here. So going back to verse 13, Paul has just pronounced that those who refuse to love the truth are under the deception of Satan through the work of the man of lawlessness... And God's final judgment upon them is to give them over to what they are already, the delusion that they are already under. Give them over to fully embrace what is false. This will bring a full and just condemnation from God himself. But then he turns to the church, those who are in God the Father and in Jesus Christ, and says, that's not your future. Those words of warnings were not to incite fear in the church, but to place them in stark contrast to the end that those who reject the gospel are facing. There's no condemnation, as we've been reading in Romans chapter 8, for those who are in Christ Jesus. So, in light of the coming condemnation on those who reject God and reject his gospel, Paul says, that's not for you. Instead of condemnation, I ought to commend you. So the church was not under the condemnation, but rather commendation. And probably even closer to the passage, not only commending them, but ultimately commending God for his work that he's doing. It's the same exact statement that he made earlier in chapter 1, verse 3. Ought always to give thanks. Verse 13 of chapter 2, we ought always to give thanks. So he's making the same statement there. And they have a very unique horizontal relationship, Paul states, with all of those who have been united to God by their faith. He says they're brothers, and that is a more plural word, so we could certainly say brothers and sisters there in verse 13, who are beloved by the Lord. So they have a unique bond amongst themselves, but they also have a unique relationship with their Lord. He's telling them that the affection of Christ toward them, and again, in an incredible stark contrast to the judgment that awaits those who reject the gospel, but those who are beloved by the Lord, Christ's affection toward them is love and benevolence. And this love, being beloved by the Lord, is a choice that Jesus Christ has made. So the same Christ who will put down the rebellion, who will destroy the man of lawlessness just by a breath, the one who's going to inflict vengeance on those who are persecuting his people, 
This is the same God, the same Christ, the same Lord, who takes extreme delight in his own children. And Paul makes sure to remind them that this affection that Christ has towards them really has nothing to do with them. They did nothing to earn this love. The affection of the Lord, to be called beloved, is of Christ's own volition. Because Christ, God himself, is never constrained by anything outside of himself or outside of his character to do anything against his own will. And Paul also states, reminding them, you did nothing to earn this, this is all of grace, because he continues on and says that they were given to Christ, they were given to the Lord by the election of God the Father. He moves on in verse 13 and says, God chose you as the first fruits to be saved. And this term first fruits can be used in a couple different ways than it is throughout the New Testament. It can be used to describe just an order of prominence or importance. So a king in the kingdom would be the first fruits of the kingdom. He's, he's, he's the preeminent one. He's the ruler. He's the one above all else. But it can also be used to describe time. Like the beginning or the very start of something. So this particular term sets something apart either in priority or in time. It's the same word that John uses in the first chapter of his gospel, in the first verse. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And that has to do with timeline. Eternity past, Jesus Christ was the Word. And He was with God, and He was God. And if we take this word in line with all of other Paul's teachings and writings, the usage of this term in this context would lead us to make the inference that the truth that Paul wants to make sure that they understand is that God has chosen these believers to be beloved by the Lord before the foundations of the earth were established. I don't think it would be right for us to read this in context and come away thinking that somehow among all of God's people, these Thessalonian believers were of preeminence, of kind of the first order, kind of the above everybody else that God has called to himself. And so I think a right reading would be that they are, they are the first fruits in time, beginning. He's reminding them that God has chosen them before the foundations of the earth. So God's plan to rescue these believers was in motion at the beginning of time and eternity past. And again, why? Why is this so important? Why are these truths about the gospel so important in this context? Again, remember that these Thessalonian believers were scared. They were shaken. They were alarmed, thinking that their one and only hope in Christ's second coming had passed them by. But he's saying, no, church, no, beloved of the Lord. Your salvation was established before the earth was formed. God's electing love has been upon you from eternity past to bring you to himself, and he's not going to leave you here. He hasn't forgotten about you. He will complete what he began. So their salvation, and by implication, our salvation, those of us who are in Christ as well. This wasn't some innovation of God. 
It was not a last-minute decision by God. It wasn't reactive. But his affection upon them was from eternity past, based on nothing but his perfect, sovereign, divine will. And we all know from the scriptures that nothing changes God's decrees. And since it is God's eternal commitment, not ours, it's God's eternal commitment to justify his people, it is then also his eternal commitment to make them like Christ, to sanctify them, and his eternal commitment to ultimately bring them to glory, to finally save them. And Paul goes on and builds this. He's just, he's just bathing this church in the gospel. So encouraging. So he chose them as the first fruits. And then he says that they were saved through sanctification and belief in the truth. He chose them to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. And if you read that at face value, it might actually seem a little counterintuitive or maybe a little even difficult to wrap our minds around. You may be saying, I thought I was saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. But this seems to be teaching that we are saved through sanctification. Saved through our belief in the truth. And, and, and why would he use a future tense verb? To be saved. I thought salvation was a one-time decision that happened in the past. I think one of the, the church fathers, one of the reformers, Martin Luther, puts it very well when he describes saving faith. And he says that we're saved by faith alone, but we're never saved by faith that is alone. And again, even that may seem a little bit confusing at first, but it's in line with the biblical gospel. If you remember over the last couple weeks when we looked at the phrase of being worthy of the kingdom and worthy of the calling, it means that the worth of the kingdom of God and the worth of the king of that domain has to be treasured above all else by the citizens of that kingdom. That there is a worthiness that is necessary to be part of the kingdom. And we looked at um, Jesus' parable in Matthew 22 about being invited to the feast. And he very clearly states that the feast is the kingdom of God. And there were those who rejected the invitation and they were not counted worthy. So there is a worthiness that is necessary to be part of the kingdom of God. We also learn that without the intervening work of grace in our lives... In our lost state, we continue to reject the gospel. And we go about our everyday business like those who reject the invitation. They went back to their farms. They went back to their businesses. So we must be worthy of the kingdom by treasuring the worth of Christ above all else, but that comes only by grace. And so how does that deal with this passage here? Paul's teaching us that final salvation comes through the process of sanctification by the Spirit, And part of that sanctification is our firm grasp on the truth. So again, I want to make sure that we understand this. This is not teaching a works-based salvation. Because he just taught us. We just looked at the verse above that these believers and in turn us who are saved are saved by the sovereign election of God who chose us to be saved. But God, yes, determines the end, the final product, but God also determines the means. His will is in the means. So yes, we are completely and fully justified. The moment that we place saving faith in the person and work of Jesus Christ alone. 
That is an unmovable judicial statement by God himself. Again, hearkening back to Romans 8, who can bring a charge against God's elect? No one, because it's God who justifies. This is a justification is a positional truth that we are declared righteous because Christ's righteousness is credited to us, applied to our account as we place our faith in him. But as Luther pointed out, that faith that saves, that justifies, and more important than Luther, as Jesus points out, as Paul points out, as James points out, and other writers point out of the scriptures, that faith without works is not a genuine saving faith. It's dead. So what he's teaching here is that the God that has chosen us to be the first fruits to be saved is the God that led us to the point of our justification by faith alone. He's the one that will continue to progressively change us from one glory to another. Call that our sanctification. And he's also the same God who brings us to our final glorification when our work of sanctification, his work of sanctification in our lives is completed. And then he continues on to remind us, again, this is not of works. He reminds us that this is the work of the Holy Spirit alone. Sanctification by the Spirit. We can't save ourselves. We can't sanctify ourselves. We, there's no way that we will finally glorify ourselves. So we must be sanctified by the Spirit, and we must hold fast or believe in the truth. These are all wrapped up in the envelope, in the package of the gospel. And so holding fast to the truth, believing the truth, Paul's reminding us this is not a cursory ascent to the gospel. It's not a a week to week or every other week or once a month or a couple times a year nod to God by attending church and feeling like we're checking off religious duties. This is a white-knuckled, desperate clinging to the only hope that we have for eternal life and rescue from this condemnation that Paul just described. This is a desperate clinging to our only hope for salvation. Last week, we saw that those who don't love the truth will perish. Now here he's saying, you, church, the ones who love the truth, the ones who believe the truth, the ones who cling tightly to the truth, will be saved. You will make it to the end. You will persevere. You will be glorified. God's work in your life will be completed. You can put it another way. Those who have been chosen by God to be saved will cling to the truth. Those who are there's no, no, there's no saving faith without a clinging, desperate hold on the gospel. Those whom God has saved will see that the gospel is their only hope, and they will hold fast to it. So as you cling for your everlasting life to this glorious truth of the gospel, and even our clinging to the gospel is a work of the Spirit in our lives because we are blind before His work in our lives. As we cling to it, then we will begin to see that as that becomes our primary source of hope and joy in this life and the next, that's when the Spirit comes in and begins to root out everything else that was replacing that desperate clinging. He's going to root out idols. He's going to root out gods in our lives that have, that have taken the place of the gospel. Clinging to the truth. 
and being sanctified by the Spirit are not two separate trains on parallel tracks that never meet. But rather they're two truths that work in tandem in order to bring us to the final destination of being glorified. As John Newton wrote in his famous hymn, Amazing Grace, His grace has brought me safe this far. And it's grace that will bring me home. The Holy Spirit will ensure that we are brought to our eternal rest with all the necessary holiness and all the necessary worthiness of the kingdom of God. So how does he do this? One of the means through which God saves and sanctifies his people is through the proclaimed gospel. The good news. We just saw Paul completely assents to the all of God work of election, of sanctification, of the grace to cling to the truth, God's effectual calling in order that we may be fully glorified in our Lord Jesus Christ. But he also assents that God ordains a means to that end. And it is the gospel. And interestingly, Paul says this is our gospel. Now, we certainly know that Paul's not saying, this is mine, I, I, I came up with this. This is something that, that we own as far as it coming from us and originating from me. This originated with Silas, this originated with Timothy. No, he actually, and feel free to turn back a couple pages, he uses the same exact terminology in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 5. You may just want to write a little cross-reference in there if you'd like. Let's start in verse 4. He says, For we know brothers loved by God. Sound familiar? We know brothers loved by God that he has chosen you. Why? Because our gospel came to you, not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. What Paul's saying here, again in 2 Thessalonians, is that they have made the gospel their own. They have done the same clinging that he just admonished these Thessalonian church believers to do. This is a treasured possession, as he will write in 2 Corinthians, that has been placed in earthen pots, clay vessels. And it's not something to be hoarded. It's not something that we cling to on our own and never to share again, but it's something to be proclaimed. It's a message. Because the saying, you may have heard it, that, hey, preach the gospel, and if necessary, use words, that's complete folly. Because Paul is saying that the way God called these Thessalonians into the reality of their election, the reality of their ongoing sanctification, the reality of their future glorification, how are they called to that? Through the faithful proclamation of the gospel. Faith comes by hearing. Hearing comes by the word of God. How will people hear without a preacher? The gospel is a message that needs to be proclaimed. It's the means through which God calls his own to himself. So we must be faithful to do that. So far in these first two verses we've looked at tonight, Paul is affirming to these believers, as well as to us as modern day readers, that all of those individuals who are objects of God's saving love do not need to fear any of the judgment that Paul described in the preceding verses. 
And he reminds us that that is, that is because it is a work of the triune God. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit have one united goal in salvation of sinners. Even though each person of the Trinity has a unique and different role in bringing about that salvation. And again, this is for the security of believers that have been shaken and alarmed. Paul goes back to the gospel to encourage them, to strengthen them. And it should bring hope to us too. Because as we read this, we need to understand that if we are in Christ, if we love the gospel, if we've embraced the truth, if we're treasuring Christ above all else, the good counsel of our triune God will never be thwarted and will never be diverted. Because what God has determined in our salvation and in the salvation of all of his people will be accomplished. No one can get in the way of our triune God and his plan and purpose for the salvation of his people. It will not be stopped. And as Paul often does in his letters as he moves forward here, is he moves from the security of the gospel and explanation of the gospel and then moves into imperatives or instructions. Because without the foundation of the gospel, any instruction that he would give any, uh, within any of his letters would come across as moralistic and a self-help suggestion with no power behind them to actually accomplish his directives. But rooted in the eternal purposes of God to justify, sanctify, and glorify his people, these commands are then seen in the light of God's grace that energizes his people in order to make their saving faith a working faith. So in light of everything that Paul has already said, he then turns to these shaken and alarmed believers and says, you need to stand firm and need to hold fast. Stand firm and hold fast to the traditions that Paul and others had taught them. So he lays these secure footings through his explanation of the gospel. Says, put your security there. Put your rest there. Don't veer away from that. Don't be easily swayed away from that. And now, everything that you hear as a taught, spoken word from God, you need to put up in the light of everything that I've already taught you. Whether something that I've spoken to you or something that I've written to you in a letter to see if it's true. Why? Because listening to and believing false teaching led to their alarm and being shaken. So Paul effectively here is saying, remember the gospel first and foremost. Look what God has done to rescue you. Now, go immerse yourself in what we have taught you so that you will not sway away from that right doctrine. This says, church, right doctrine is going to lead you to right living. It's going to lead you to stability. Listening to false teaching that does not line up with what we've already taught you leads to internal agitation and emotional and external alarm. And he's not saying hold faster traditions, those things that you really like, your preferences. But he's referring ultimately to the gospel and everything else that Paul had already taught them through the letter and being their pastor. Now, 
This, because again, remember who this letter is written to. It's not a pastoral epistle. It's not written to the lead pastor or the group of elders at a church, but rather he's writing it to the church members. And so what he's writing here applies to every one of us in this room. Every member of the church needs to be a student of the word. It's not just the job of the pastors. Because how else are these church members going to know and remember what Paul had taught them? The only way for them to fulfill this command is to make sure that they listen every time the Word of God is taught. And then also to study what's already been written down and then make sure those two things align. Again, it's a directive to every one of us. And then Paul closes with a prayer for these believers. He wraps up this section in verses 16 and 17. He keeps coming back to the identity that these believers need to embrace. You remember the opening greeting in verse 1? He says, you're the church at Thessalonica, but it goes deeper because you're in God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. And then he says, grace and peace flow to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. The end of chapter 1, he prays that their resolves for good would result in works of faith according to the power and grace of God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. It's almost like Paul's trying to enforce something here in their minds. Repetition aids learning. You think Paul thinks it's important to establish them as being united to God as the foundation of their stability, as the ground for every one of their prayers? as the root of all right teaching. And in case you weren't sure if that was important to him yet, here he goes again. Verse 16, Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father. That's how he begins his prayer. He says, This Lord Jesus Christ, the one you've been united to, the one from whom grace and peace flows, The one that you are beloved. Yes, even the one to come and defeat the rebellion, defeat the man of lawlessness with a breath and bring condemnation upon unbelievers. So he says, Jesus and God our Father, the one who chose them and called them by the gospel. He's praying to them. He's invoking them again and reminding them that they are the source of love for the believers, the source of comfort, Oops, I'm sorry. And the source of all good hope. We just died. I'll make sure I give you those blanks in case. That's why I have a handout up here. Not in the applications yet. So Lord Jesus Christ and God the Father, if you didn't get that, are the sources of love, source of comfort, and source of hope. Not yet. There we go. And isn't this what they needed? Not only Paul's teaching, but Paul's informing us here through his prayers that they're very specific to the needs of the people that he loves. Yes, I'm sure each, and these kind of prayers are not wrong, I'm sure each one of these had, there are people in this flock that had physical needs, they had relational needs, they had financial needs. But ultimately, we learn from Paul that there are needs even above that that he needs to be praying for. 
This is a church under intense persecution, being swayed by false teaching. But Paul doesn't berate them. He doesn't, he doesn't come down hard with an iron fist, remind them of their own foolishness. But he seeks to undergird them with the gospel. He wants to remind them there is a source of real comfort and real joy. You've been shaken by false teaching. Let me, let me, let me align that with the word. Let me root out false teaching and replace it with right teaching. They were quickly shaken. He prays, this flock needs comfort. They were alarmed. He prays, God, give them good hope. They were frozen in fear, thinking that Jesus had already come. They were not, and so they weren't living out their calling on this earth. So he prays, God, establish them for every good work. Establish them for every good deed and every good word. And so he's saying, may God, by his own grace, affirm his love in your hearts through comfort and that your union in him will be clearly seen because his grace is producing good works and good words in your life. The saving faith that Paul clearly states here in verses 13 to 15, the saving faith, he says, needs to also be a working faith. And God's work in the lives of believers needs to be obvious. And so let's just close with a few points of application here tonight. Number one, may our time together in this, in this short passage remind us and remind you that you are beloved by the Lord. The God of all eternity has set his affection upon you. Not because of anything that you have done, but because of his love for you. And you're beloved by the Lord. Why? Because God has chosen you in eternity past. God's rescue plan for each one of his children, and that includes you if you are in Christ, has always been in place. Always. There's not been a time where God's electing love has not been upon you. Yes, there again, as we talk, there's a specific time in which through your faith in him, he justifies you. But the beginning of that plan through his election has always stood. And his counsel for you, your, sancti- your justification, your sanctification, your glorification will stand. Because if it didn't stand, that would mean that something got in the way of our triune God. And that will never happen. Number three. You are being, excuse me, typo, being sanctified by the Spirit as you believe what is true. The tighter your grip is on the truth of the gospel, the looser your grip becomes on things of this earth. And the Spirit will begin to root those things out, continue to bring complete joy and satisfaction in Jesus Christ through His gospel. So you are being sanctified by the Spirit as you believe in what is true. Number four, God has called you to the glory of Jesus through the gospel. The gospel is the good news that's not just for a one-time decision. The gospel is the good news that justifies you and sanctifies you and one day will glorify you. So because of these truths, number five... Dive deeper into the gospel every day that you have on earth. 
The gospel's like a diamond. It's, it's simple to behold in one sense. It's simple enough for a child to accept and embrace. But the facets of it take a lifetime to enjoy and to embrace and to learn. And so don't be swayed by other promises from the world. Don't be swayed by false teachers. But if you desire peace and hope, go to the source. And the source is the truth of the gospel. And lastly, number six, pray that God's peace and comfort will result in good works and good words. In one sense, we do rest in the gospel. The gospel declares that something has already been done that we could never do. And so in that sense, we rest. But it's not a passive rest. Yes, we rest in it as the only way to know God, to be reconciled to a holy God. We rest knowing we can do nothing to either earn or lose his favor because it's been set upon us from eternity past before, as Romans says, we did any good or any bad. God's love and favor was upon his people. But our faith is a faith that needs to be working. And so may our lives individually and corporately as a church showcase the worthiness of Christ. Our worthiness to be called into his kingdom and worthy of the gospel that he's called us to. Let's pray.